Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. rescue by recording another episode of stick to wrestling hi my name is john mcadam and i want to thank the rolling stones for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast and with that i want to bring on part two of my conversation with jeff bowdrin let's get right to it all right most overrated the observer had pedro morales jeff you've already talked about pedro morales might have been your most overrated mine is george Steele. once again we already talked about that sucking up main events in the major arenas let's go with best flying wrestler pro wrestling illustrated did not do this but the wrestling observer had jimmy snooker which really surprised me uh, Jeff, who do you think was the best flying wrestler in 1981? Well, I, you know, Jimmy Snuka, especially being in Georgia and, and stuff like that, was getting national exposure. I'm I'm more surprised they didn't do just some guy that like, you know, Mil Mascaris or something like that, just because, you know, the Observer audience in 1981 was far, uh, I'm going to use a word that uh, people don't like, they were far less smart to the business than they were five years after that, you know? Yeah. Plus. You did not have people that were watching Mexico. You did not have people that were watching Japan. So, you know, for what they saw, I'm sure Jimmy Snuka probably was the best flying guy. Or, you know, like somebody like uh, maybe Chavo Guerrero or something, somebody like that. Who are you thinking of? Well, that's a really good point that you can only vote uh, theoretically on what you see. And Jimmy Snuka is on national cable. And in fairness, like I've had 40 years to watch tapes from 1981 and they didn't have that. So that that's an excellent point. And plus, videotapes were hard to get in 1981. They were really expensive, as were VCRs. But with 40 years of hindsight, I would have gone Kevin Von Erich over Jimmy Snuka based on Georgia and world class. But ultimately, I would have gone with Dynamite Kid. I mean, Dynamite well, Kid was doing amazing stuff in Japan course, and Calgary. But unfortunately, nobody saw Dynamite Kid, <laughs> you know, right. because he was in Calgary. Now, if they'd had some sort of national outlet, I'm sure everyone would have been going, who the hell is this guy? He's absolutely amazing because he absolutely was uh, and hadn't become, you know, begin to freakishly out, basically outgrow his own body with uh, the supplements. Uh, that's a nice way of, of putting what he was doing. Supplements. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, no, in 1981, like uh, the stuff, uh, I think we reviewed a match that he did in like, I want to say in England in like 1979 or 80. And even then he was just taking these incredible bumps and doing these incredible flying maneuvers that you were just like, nobody else is doing this. Who is this guy? You know? Yeah. I saw a list in the New York. I think it was in the New York daily news. Meltzer would send in like his top 10 and I didn't understand where he was coming from. I'm like, okay, you know, number one, Hulk Hogan, number two, Ric Flair. And he's got dynamite kid who I, I had only read about in the magazines. I'm like, what kind of list is this? You know, but one thing I got to throw this in. I did not tell you my most underrated. It's Bar- It's Buddy Rose just ahead of Kevin Von Erich. And yeah, Kevin Von Erich was an outstanding flyer in 1981 as well. But ultimately, I'm going with Donnie, my kid. Buddy Rose in Portland was absolutely amazing in the early part of the, uh, the 1980s. He was uh, just a big fish in a small pond. And taken with that caveat, 
it, what he was doing was just next level. You know, Barry and I have talked about how we would have liked to have seen Buddy before he began putting on all the weight, have a shot at a you know promo, a promotion. And I know he went out to New York and was uh, like just looked completely out of place. But, uh, you know, if you had given a guy a chance, whether it's like in a Mid-South or in a CWF or Memphis or in Texas or something, and I, he was in Texas, he was still, was he still Paul Pershman there? He was. He was Kevin Von Erich's first ever opponent. Yeah, and, and whenever you saw a video of Kevin wrestling, you always saw him wrestling a very young, uh, slim still Buddy Rose. But uh, I think it would have been really interesting to see what Buddy could have done uh, in those other territories. What do you think? I agree. I would have loved to have seen Prime Buddy. We're talking late 70s, early 80s in, in mid-Atlantic or Florida. He did come out here, and he had excellent matches against Bob Backlund. He had a really good match in Boston against Pedro Morales, who was past his prime, obviously. But no one up here took him seriously. He got the wrong kind of heat. You know, it was just no one took, thought for a second he was going to beat Bob Backlund or take the Intercontinental Championship. From Pedro Morales. I mean, you know, like I said, it, it, it did not get over, but he was a fantastic performer. And if you're on our Facebook group, please remind me on the group to show you the match with Buddy Rose against Kurt Henning in the WWF. Where I mean, it was like Buddy had a death wish. He wanted to break one of his legs. He wanted to break one of his ankles with the bumps he was taking. It was nuts. Yeah, Buddy Buddy Rose and his army out in uh, Portland was uh, was really good stuff. And if you're a uh... You got a uh, Saturday afternoon. You're looking for some wrestling to watch on YouTube. Google Buddy Rose in Portland and uh, the early and look at his stuff from the early part of the 80s uh, when he was with uh, geez, uh, Ed Wiskowski and uh, those guys just uh, and, and feuding with Roddy Piper before Roddy Piper really broke nationally. Just really, really good stuff. Jay Youngblood was out there, too. That's another thing. Portland, there were so many guys. Think about it, you know, like Jay Youngblood, Adrian Adonis, Jesse Ventura, Jimmy Snuko. Think of all the guys that went through Portland that became big stars right after they left Portland. Roddy Piper, Rick Martel. Yeah. 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 I mean, everyone in the 80s, everyone went through either Portland or Memphis. And when those promotions dried up, I mean, so did a lot of, you know, places where, where guys could learn. You know, the guys were coming straight to the WWF from Indies, which I just didn't like. Yeah. No, it's, it was a great learning territory. You were never going to get rich, but you always knew what your paycheck was going to be because Don Owen always made sure that what he promised the guys they were going to get is exactly what they got. Yeah. Don Owen had a great reputation, just like Sam Mushnick. You know, he didn't lie to you and he didn't expect you to lie to him. All right. Ah, most charismatic pro wrestling illustrated did not have this. The Observer went with Michael Hayes. Jeff, who did you think was the most charismatic wrestler in 1981? Um, I would have gone probably with Hayes, maybe Piper, even over like Flair, I think. Uh, I think Hayes or Piper would have been a good choice. Yeah, I went with Michael Hayes as well. Other guys I mentioned were Magnificent Morocco, JYD, Tommy Rich. Uh, I should have had Ric Flair on this list because Rick, Rick was dripping with charisma in 1981. Uh, you know, the only reason I'm not mentioning JYD so far is I really think, uh, and I'm not uh, saying that you're inaccurate with your uh, your mention of him, but I really think prime JYD started about 1982. So that's the only reason, you know, I think 1981, they, he hadn't quite got there yet. Ah, in my own opinion, and I have seen some Mid-South from 1980, it used to air on cable out here. 
Uh, I mean, I thought JYD was, you know, fantastic when I saw him in 1980. The guy captivated me. I thought he, he was like it. The only problem I thought at the time was how is a guy called the Junkyard Dog going to get pushed in the WWF or Mid-Atlantic or Florida? And, well, times are changing. He was a perfect example of a promoter that knew exactly what he wanted, found the right guy, and made lots of money off of him and for him. And despite multiple attempts, was never able to replace him after he left for the WWF. It would essentially be like uh, Eddie Graham creating Dusty Rhodes and turning Dusty Rhodes into the American dream and then having him leave and trying to come up with a new guy, uh, like making Bobby Jaggers the new Dusty Rhodes, you know, or Eddie Graham creating Jack Briscoe and deciding that he wanted to uh, come up with a, a new guy and uh, and make him the new Jack Briscoe. It's like, you know, lightning sometimes doesn't uh, always strike a second time, especially in pro wrestling. I, I agree with that. Okay, let's talk about 1981 Feud of the Year. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have this, which kind of surprises me. Uh, the Observer had Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan. This might be, Jeff, a case of whichever feud had the most eyeballs won out because I thought Andre and Khan, the matches were surprisingly good, but the feud itself, it's like, oh, okay, Khan breaks this guy's leg and now they're going to fight about it. I, I, to me, it wasn't a great feud. I, I think uh, it was another example of 1981. I think a lot of the readership from uh, people that got the observer was centered on, uh, you know, people that were WWF fans Uh, As opposed to, as I mentioned before, there was no mention of people that were into Japanese wrestling, Mexican wrestling. There weren't a lot of people that were uh, fans of uh, Southern wrestling other than maybe Georgia. It wasn't a great year in uh, CWF. It wasn't something that was like especially memorable the way that in my mind, the 1982 became more memorable. So I can understand why it won. Would it have been my choice? Not necessarily. Uh, I would have gone... Uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, was Piper and, and Bob Armstrong, was that in 1981 or is that 82? It started in 81. Like yeah. the, the confrontation started late 81, but yeah, I think they blew up at each other in 1982, if I recall yeah. correctly. So uh, if I, let's see, if I don't go for that, then um, what about Piper and Tommy Rich? Was that 81? I think that was more 82, but that was okay. a good Well, that, I'm over two. What do you got, John? <laughs> All right. Well. I can understand why someone would vote Andre Khan over Dusty versus Assassin number one, because I saw it on TV and they didn't. That makes sense. Maybe you didn't get Georgia TV and you didn't get to see Tommy Rich versus the mass superstar, which is a really good feud. Yeah. What I don't understand, if if you're going to vote Andre versus Killer Khan, why not vote? My number one, Pat Patterson versus Sergeant Slaughter. That was an awesome feud. Yeah, no, that would that would uh, be a better uh, if you're going a WWF feud. I think that would definitely have been a better choice. I don't think, but you know, like you said, the 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 stuff that uh, was in the magazines because even for Observer readers, they were basing a lot of their selections off stuff they read in the magazines. Yeah. So. Who are cavemen compared to 2021? <laughs> So, yes, thank God there was no Twitter back then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank God, indeed, that no one was 
keeping track of what I was doing on Facebook. But yeah, my, so mine. Yeah, no so, one, no one putting the boots to David Von Eric. I saw that recent uh, little uh, comment from somebody, John. Who is this guy, David Von Eric, and uh, why did everyone think he was so great? You know well, what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh yeah, I, I mean, someone compared David Von Eric. You know who is better, David Von Eric or Barry Windham? And I just say, look, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. David Von Eric died when he was 25. I mean, you know, we can't compare him to Barry Windham. No, and and I I was a huge fan and a, a huge mark. I'm not ashamed to say of Barry Windham in Florida. I, you know, I was a big fan of the guy. But David Von Eric as a heel was just next level. And I think you know, I think you've mentioned it before that if you think about how old David Von Eric was when he died, if he had been alive. Ten years after the fact, I think he still would have been younger than uh, Kevin Nash. He was right around the same age as Kevin Nash, Arn Anderson, Bret Hart. Uh, we're talking like within 12 months. Yeah. So he still could have been a big part of the Monday Night War, to be honest with you. You know, had he not died. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's an alternate universe where Barry Windham was a big part of the Monday Night Wars, and it he wasn't. No, and and. You know, unfortunately, that was part of the time frame when we lost a lot of guys who could have had major roles in the industry uh, way too young and very sadly. Yeah, that was. And I remember Dave Meltzer saying, if there's one more death in wrestling, someone's reporter is going to investigate this and the wrestling business is going to be in big trouble. I think he said that after Gino Hernandez passed, we lost. David Von Erich, Jay Youngblood, Gino Hernandez. I'm forgetting who else, but it was it was a rough patch. Well, and that was that was even before you got to the guys that were uh, addicted to painkillers, you know? Yeah, we lost so many guys from the 90s, you know, that I can't I couldn't even keep up at the time. But anyway, yeah, no, I was... worst match of the year. Jeff, they didn't have anything in the Observer or Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Was there a match in 1981 that you saw that, that stood out and made you say, oh, my God, this match stinks? Uh, I mean, honestly, I probably uh, wasn't smart enough if I saw a horrible match to realize that I was watching a horrible match. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember in 1983 seeing Rocky Johnson and George Steele in Boston and saying, oh, my God, this is a horrible match. Or John Studd and Andre the Giant uh, same year and being like, OK, these guys can't move. I'm putting this in two separate categories. The worst match I saw in 1981 was seen by only me and about 15,000 other people. And it's going to surprise some people. Bob Backlund against Don Morocco in a one-hour draw at the Boston Garden. You know, I wasn't smart to the business, but man, this match was terrible. And I could tell probably not even 10 minutes in that they were doing a Broadway and that's what they did. Well, you know, they they have to pace themselves. And, you know, as you were telling that story, I was sitting there thinking, hey, think about how many matches Ric Flair did that were 60 minute, you know, matches. And I remember Ric Flair uh, years ago, I'm sure it's over 20 years ago now. Uh, one of the criticisms that he had of Bret Hart was that, you know, uh, oh, he does the same spots at every match. He does the run. The, and I'm like, really, have you ever seen a Ric Flair match where, you know, there's the, uh, or maybe actually now that I think about it, Screw that. Maybe I, I'm getting it backwards. Maybe it was Bret Hart that was criticizing yeah. Ric Flair. And, you know, like, but I immediately thought of, well, yeah, Ric Flair does the flip into the ropes every match. is a little tribute to Ray Stevens. If he's a baby face, he runs to the next corner and hits the elbow off the top rope. If he's a heel, he gets, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Body pressed off the top rope. But Bret Hart in every match had the face first into the turnbuckle, 
that was, uh, you know, something that was a staple of every Bret Hart match. So, you know, there are guys, especially if they're going out there and having a match of any kind of duration, there is that tendency to where you're working the same stuff. And the guys that don't do that are really few and far between. I agree with you. And I think that wasn't a complaint in 1981 because you didn't have the access to see all of Ric Flair's matches, all of Bret Hart's matches. And uh, yeah, you know, it was Bret who was saying that about Rick, and I'm glad those two have finally made up as far as I know. Um, the worst match from 1981 that you can actually see, in my opinion, and this is another big surprise, Bob Backlund against Stan Hansen in a cage match for Madison Square Garden. I mean, Backlund in his book basically said he sandbagged the match. Who, he did or Stan did? Backlund did. Backlund took forever to get to the ring. And then he just put on a, a really short, crappy match. And, and in his book, you know, I, for years, just figured, okay, Bob had the flu or something. But no, Bob, in his book, said, you know, he wasn't going to give Stan Hansen a good main event. I guess there was heat between the two of them. I actually really like Bob's book a lot. And, you know, so did I. Uh, and, you know, like, I, I like the fact that he didn't have a problem shitting on Angelo Mosca as his worst opponent of all time. <laughs> that was Actually, because I, I was not a huge fan, rest in peace, we lost him recently, but I was not a big fan of Angelo Mosca when he came to uh, to Florida, you know, and the whole, uh, I walk and I talk and I do exactly what I want. And then, of course, they foisted uh, Angelo Jr. on us as the uh, the CWF Rookie of the Year. Oh, good Lord, John. And see, now you people in the WWF, you never got Angelo Mosca Jr. up there. We did. Oh, you did? Uh, late 84, he was up here, and he didn't last. Yeah, there's a huge shock. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Big Nasty was uh, was not good. Uh, the son was even worse. I mean, to While me— While saying he was a great athlete, because, you know, he was obviously a big deal in CFL, uh, and he was uh, a guy that—have you ever heard the story? Uh, I, I guess I read it in the Observer, uh, you know, like uh, obituary to him. I did not hear the story about how he got kicked out of Notre Dame. I didn't know he got kicked out of Notre Dame. Yeah, how do you Notre get kicked Dame? out of Notre Dame in the Might have been like his freshman or sophomore year. He was there like a year or two. And I think there may have been some allegations of gambling. Not necessarily like betting against the team, but, you know, needless to say, I mean, you're talking late 50s or, or thereabouts. And, you know, if there's any kind of uh, hint of you doing any sort of gambling, especially at a place like Notre Dame, uh, see ya. Bye-bye. <laughs> you know, so uh, he was gone. Okay, well, I, I hadn't, I had not known about that. All right, Jeff, you're good at this. Pro wrestling match of the year, the best match of the year. The Observer gave it to Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter for their match at Madison Square Garden. Now, this is a little bit of a surprise. They had two matches at Madison Square Garden. PWI, excuse me, the Observer has the first match, which was not the alley fight. Pro Wrestling Illustrated had Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan. What do you think you, the best match of 1981 was, in your uh, opinion? I, I think uh, the uh, the Alley Street fight is probably the uh, the best choice. Uh, you know, the uh, I see that uh, the runner up in the Observer is uh, is Dusty versus uh, Ric Flair, the title change in Kansas City, and that's just you know people basically uh, oh let's let's see what title change was the best. You know, there uh, that probably wasn't even a really good Dusty Flair match. You know. I, and I there's mean, not a lot of footage of it out there. No, it's just, I think the finish is, is all that's out there. And, uh, but, um, if you watch stuff from Memphis, you know, there was stuff in Memphis that was going on that was better than anything that those two guys were doing because Memphis was, 
you know, like uh, that was the time, even with Lawler out, they were putting on such good main events and had such good young uh, guys in the ring, a good talent. The stuff that was happening uh, in mid-Atlantic was probably better than that. Again, it was a title change. I get it. Andre versus Killer Khan was probably the one that got lots of attention in the after magazines. That's why it was voted on. But Patterson and Slaughter was, uh, yeah, that stuff was incredible. Especially for its time. And I also went with the Patterson-Slaughter alley fight. I don't even know what comes in second place. I mean, that was for its time and for its place. Well, it, was, it was just it was so Rhodes, out there. Rhodes and Flair came in second place, according to what I, when I uh, Googled uh, the Observer Awards for that year. So let me ask you a question. Sure. What did you enjoy more? As somebody who was a fan of the WWF, I will say uh, more than I was. What did you enjoy better? Did you enjoy the Patterson Slaughter Alley Street Fight or the Slaughter Iron Sheik Boot Camp match? They were both excellent matches, but I went with Patterson. I would go with Patterson Slaughter because it, it, it was the first one. Yeah. I was That's like, fair. You know, I mean, I, was just, I don't really think there's a wrong answer. Both of them were great. Yeah, both of them were great. And Patterson, you know, all four of those guys were elite workers at the time. Yeah. All right. So let me see. Worst promotion of the year. Uh, neither PWI nor The Observer had this. Jeff, unless you're really, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, romanticize wrestling in 1981, but unless you're talking about like Tomko or, you know, I don't know, there weren't any really bad promotions, in my opinion, that I saw. No, that's the, you know, that was the first name that, that popped into my head when you, you started, because, you know. There are ebbs and flows to every promotion, but, you know, was anybody really like where you go, oh, man, that promotion was horrible that year? No, you might have a couple of months where things aren't going as well as they usually do, but then you kind of pick things up, whether it's because you you hit on something hot or you're doing hot shotting or what. But, yeah, Tomko was pretty much universally thought of as being bad. Oh, I mean, I've seen some Tomko from like 86, 87, and it is unwatchable isn't even the word i mean it's it, but if, if i had to make a list of the best promotions of 1981 and the one that was just at the bottom of the list i liked it but you know it wasn't as good as mid-atlantic or florida or whatever i probably would have gone with southwest championship wrestling and again it's not even bad it, it, it was fun to watch it was just not as good as the other promotions yeah i've seen stuff from uh southwest in the early part of the 80s you know, the interesting thing is guys could be in Southwest and you'd be like, ah, there's really not a lot going on here. And then you see them on a Houston card because there's so much Houston stuff out there on YouTube and you go, okay, yeah, I'll watch this and it'll turn out to be a good match, you know? Uh, whereas uh, like, I'll say like a, like a Tully Blanchard and a Gino Hernandez match. Okay. Maybe in San Antonio, it's really not that great of stuff. But you put him in with a good opponent in Houston, and you're like, man, this is, a, this is a really good match. I'm really enjoying this, you know? So I, I, but again, it's not like you're watching the stuff that Al Tomko was doing, like, you know, John said in the 86 and 87 timeframe. It was just uh, stuff hadn't really begun to uh, hit the shitter, if you will. No, that, that's exactly it. Sorry it for cursing me. because now people are, are going to say you're cursing too much, Jeff. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's going to say that, Jeff. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was a good promotion, just not as good as the other ones, in my opinion. Uh, the AWA might have been in there, but I've seen a lot more Southwest than the, than the AWA. Not a lot of 1981 AWA in circulation, as far as I know. Worst on interviews. 
Neither the Observer nor Pro Wrestling Illustrated had this award. Observer had it at one point. But, Jeff, who really stunk on the mic in 1981? I know Barry Windham was pretty bad on the mic when he first started. I don't know if he was the worst, but comparatively speaking to what we were used to seeing, he was pretty bad. Let me see. Uh, let me let me go through my list of promotions here. Uh, you know, I this was not necessarily 1981, was it? I mean, it was. I can tell you who ended up being a fantastic interview that would have not been good at this point, based on what I've seen uh, from Mid Atlantic, and that's Jake Roberts. Jake Roberts was not a good. I mean, he was babyface Jake Roberts with the cowboy hat and everything. But he was not anywhere near like, you know, you see, oh, Jake Roberts in Mid-Atlantic. He's going to lie. Jake the Snake. No, this is not Jake the Snake. This is just plain old vanilla babyface Jake Roberts in Mid-Atlantic was not good. I remember seeing him as a babyface in Mid-South and being, you know, I, I don't remember anything about his interviews, but he was a babyface. And I was very surprised to learn through the magazines that he had turned heel in Florida and aligned himself with Kevin Sullivan because I'd never seen or heard of Jake Roberts in that role before. He was paid, I believe, $1,100 by the bone buster whose name was said to be Nevik Navalis. <laughs> and then, of course, Gordon looks at the camera and goes, Nevik Navalis, there's something familiar about that name. So. Kevin Sullivan had returned to Florida after a lengthy absence. He had been a babyface for years there. And I remember, yeah, exactly. And then Steve Kern, you know, the, he, Steve Kern, they're talking about Kevin Sullivan coming back. And Steve Kern was like, uh, you know, I you was don't know in this guy. Memphis. What's that? You don't huh? know this guy anymore, Mike. He's changed. Yeah, exactly. It was a, it was really good the way they did it. And of course, Kevin turned on everybody. Yep. All right. My worst on interviews, I considered Terry Von Eric. I considered Bob Backlund. And again, I, I, I apologize for Backlund a lot because he was doing the Bruno Sammartino interview, basically, and it was effective. Ultimately, though, I remember watching wrestling in 1981 and seeing Steve Olsonowski and being like, what is this guy even trying to do in front of this camera? You know, uh, when he had he had some kind of hand injury. And so they put him in front of the camera with Gordon and he was awful. And it's just like a couple years, like I want to say like late 82 into the 83 year when Tom Pritchard came on there with Gordon. And it was like, I think part of the problem was both guys you were comparing to Roddy Piper, which is like completely unfair to Pritchard and Olsenowski, you know, like, like why are these guys on here? They're nowhere near as good as Roddy Piper and they weren't supposed to be. But at the same point, like, really, you're going to have this Tom Pritchard who, you know, of course, he had been out in L.A. and, you know, worked with Bosch for years. But, you know, when he comes on Georgia, it's like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that guy's name. But it's not like, oh, yeah, here's a guy that I've heard of. So let me hear what he's got to say. And it just he did not have the charisma and neither did Steve O. I might have subconsciously been comparing Steve Odorati Piper, but I, re I remember thinking, you know, this guy absolutely stinks. You, you mentioned Pritchard and you have mentioned Houston wrestling. There are some earlier clips from the Houston wrestling available on YouTube where you see Tom Pritchard as the guy taking the jackets from the ring. Yep. I mean, he was around Bosch, you know, around wrestling all of his adult life. And 
Thank you. Know what's, you know what's really crazy about Houston wrestling? If you go in there and you do a deep dive on Houston wrestling, there's like stuff out there, matches from like uh, the the late set. There's like a Harley Race versus uh, Terry Funk match. I want to say from like '77. That's like a 45 minute match. It's really excellent. But as you go later in the decade, and you can find stuff like you know Dusty Rhodes and Mark Lewin and and uh, Gino Hernandez and guys like that. But one of the things they did, and at first I was like, what the hell is this? There would be a guy sitting in the corner of, of each of the wrestlers. Now, I'm not talking about a manager. I'm talking about a guy who was just like a fan who would like sit in their corner and he would sit there and watch. And like, you know, the thing would, the action would spill out of the ring and they'd kind of stand up and they'd, you know, like kind of like be wagging the finger at the heel or something. Like that. And I'm like, who are these guys and why are they sitting ringside? And apparently, I don't know if it was just like some guy that was affiliated with the auditorium or what, but have you ever seen that stuff? I have. And one of the cool things about the Houston footage, like people would start throwing stuff at the ring and they would get on the mic every single time. Do not throw anything towards the ring. Do not throw anything towards the ring. Like every match they have that. And you know, the other thing that's amazing about the footage that's out there on YouTube is it's almost pristine. The the condition of the footage, you know, like, yeah, it, it looks like it could have been happening like last year. Uh, it's it's not like, you know, uh, the eighth generation, uh, you know, I got that from John McAdam, <clears throat> uh, you know, that kind of thing with the squiggly <laughs> lines. This is a really good, uh, you know, footage. And, I, you know, I'm guessing they must have got it off the masters from whether it was uh, Peter Burkholz or the, the Bosch estate or whoever, or maybe maybe one of the Pritchards. But it's in really, really good condition. I can't recommend that stuff enough because there's some really, really good stuff. Going into the early 80s. And one of the things that Barry and I talked about is if you look at it, the audience at the Houston wrestling, like just kind of flips, like where you have in the late seventies, if you look at the front couple of rows, very older crowd dressed like in suits and stuff like that. And then at some point, like in the early part of the eighties, uh, first of all, you start seeing a lot of, a lot more younger people. You start seeing uh, people, uh, you know, like uh, it's just like the, the script has flipped where you've gone from a much older crowd to a much younger crowd. And it's not like, you know, the rock and roll express are in nothing like that. It's just like at some point, I don't know if the, the people that were at ringside died out or just lost interest in wrestling, but it really, the, uh, the front couple of rows really changed. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of went for all sports. I mean, I, I look at old baseball reels and you see guys in suits in the front row and then that went away and, you know, probably in, in the seventies, but Anyway, let's go over what was the best promotion of the year, in your opinion, in 1981? No Pro Wrestling Illustrated or Observer on this. I'd say probably Georgia would have to be the easy choice because they were still like just on fire. You know, they hadn't uh, started having all their financial issues that led to the rift between Barnett and Ole Anderson. That was like can't be missed TV for me. I loved Georgia. I loved the WWF. With this, I went with Mid-South Wrestling. Actually, no, I'm sorry. I went with Florida Wrestling over Mid-South. I think what separated Florida and Mid-South from Georgia is Georgia, as much as I loved it, for the most part, was squash match interview, squash match interview. Florida and, and Mid-South would give you main events. Well, but then you'd also have where they'd show you that clip from the Omni. Let's go to the Omni for the, uh, you know, and you'd see the the highlight of... Uh, you know, JYD and Ted DiBiase taking on uh, 
the Freebirds or something like that with Michael Hayes at ringside. That was the stuff that are like, okay, this is what I'm here for. Give me, give me that two minute clip from the Omni, you know? And uh, I mean, I can see what you're saying. You're, you're right. I'm sure that mid South and Florida did do that and gave you uh, better matches on television. But uh, yeah, it was that it was those clips from the Omni. That's what you were hanging on for. And really, I mean, I loved the studio format of Georgia Championship Wrestling. To me, that was just so attractive and charismatic for me. Like that little studio where it was like a high school gym, like these people with these crazy chants. Yeah, no, that was uh, long ago and far away, seemingly, in the, the, the wrestling business. Yeah. <laughs> and that's never coming back, people. Nope. That's just the way it is. I know people have tried to bring it back, but it's not coming back. Okay. Best on interviews, the Observer had a tie between Captain Lou Albano and Roddy Piper. Who was the best interview, in your opinion, in 1981, Jeff? Uh, Piper or Hayes. Okay, mine was Piper over Lawler. Well, uh, you know, Lawler was out, you know, because of the, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, now, you know, let me just he say this. He was back for most of 1981. Okay, let me just say this about Lawler. One of the things, and I, I've said this on our show before, that is so impressive to me about Jerry Lawler is Jerry Lawler. And this is something that my old friend, Pete Letterberg had told me a long time ago. Jerry Lawler had to sell himself to the exact same audience on a weekly basis, 52 weeks out of the year. And he was able to do it for the better part of almost 20 years. And yeah, he switched heel and there were heel runs, you know, when he first started, uh, then he switched babyface, And I think he had, God, it was probably a good 15-year run as a babyface before he switched heel in the early part of the 90s and stuff like that and kind of became the guy that, you know, he became on the WWF. But he had to put those people, yeah, there wasn't any pay-per-view money. Uh, there was, you know, this was a guy that had to sell what he was, you know, had to, he had to get the people that were watching the show to buy what he was selling. And it was essentially the same audience, you know, and the fact that he could get those people with your, your various ebb and flows, you know, like, you know, you'd have the sellout crowd of 10,000 people plus, and then maybe uh, you'd have a couple of weeks where it was like down to six or 7,000, but then you get a really hot program started and he'd jump back up. This guy was doing this to the same audience. This was, And, you know, this was not like, hey, we're going to be in, uh, you know, Philadelphia, and then we're going to, you know, we're going to go to Boston. This was the same crowd that he had to sell to every week. That makes his his run just so impressive to me. And so, yeah, no, Jerry Lawler was amazing. I mean, it was the same loop of cities, Memphis, Nashville, Louisville, Evansville, et cetera. And you're right. You know, you're right. Peter's right that, you know, Lawler had to sell himself every week. I'm not always right about everything, but in the late eighties, someone asked me, you know, what's going to happen to Memphis when, when Lawler finally retires? I mean, he's, you know, close to 40 now. And my prediction, they're going out of business and they're never going to be able to replace Lawler. And I was asked, well, what about Jeff Jarrett? I'm like, that's never going to happen. He's never going to be Jerry Lawler. And, you know, it was something I was right about when, you know, Memphis just crashed and burned. And maybe, you know, even it might have had nothing to do with Jerry Lawler. It probably had more to do with the Monday Night Wars than anything, but they never replaced him. Well, a story that uh, I've told that uh, I heard that talk about being prophetic and I, and I realized that Memphis in a lot of ways was a different animal, but, uh, when we had, uh, the dinners, we had uh, dinner one night. One of the very first dinners we had was with Terry Funk, who was, as you can imagine, was just an amazing guest. And he told us this story about how 
he uh, was in, uh, I want to say maybe it was like Houston or something like that, but it was somewhere in Texas. And he was appearing on a card and Tommy Rich was on the card too. And at this point he was, he was not a heel. He was a baby face in Texas. And he pulls up to the arena and he gets out of his car and maybe like Tommy Rich was in the same car with him or he was in the car next to him and Tommy was getting out. And so Terry, uh, now think about it. The funk name in Texas, uh, if this was the early part of the eighties would have been around for 20 something years. Okay. Uh, just a legend, an icon, even then. Terry says he gets out of his car. He starts walking to the back door to go into the arena. He sees this group of fans come running towards him. And he's like, oh, this is nice. Or they're so excited to see me. And he goes, they literally ran right past me to Tommy Rich. And they all crowded around Tommy Rich because Tommy Rich was on cable television, which was, you know, a relatively new thing at the time. And I turned and I looked and he went in and he told Dory, he said, we got to sell the territory because this is like this cable TV is going to completely change our business. And, you know, we, we can't just run a, a single territory anymore because national television and national wrestling on television is, is coming. And uh, he was right. Now, that's funny because Terry told me he come. Wait a minute. Bit, you say Terry worked this? Go ahead. I, I, I think some of the details of the story just change over time. I mean, let's be honest. It's been 40 years or probably 30 years, but it's been like 10 years when I got to hang out with Terry and Terry said that he came home one day and there was wrestling on WTBS. WTBS had been added to his cable system. And he said at that moment in late 1979, he said that he knew it was time to sell the promotion and he sold it to Blackjack Mulligan and, and Dick Murdoch. Yeah. And pray tell, 10 years later, he's right. Wrestling is dominated by cable. Yeah, no, you know, there's the death of the territories. You know, people people want to say that, oh, it was Vince that killed the territories. That was cable television that killed the territories. It was cable television that killed the territories. That was a, the fourth show that we did, and it, it's up there if you want to listen to it. on Video killed the radio star, John. What about the, the, the Vogels? Did you like them? The, the, let's, let's make this full circle. We'll go back to the music that we started with. <laughs> <laughs> My understanding is that was the first video that ever aired on MTV. You know what the second video was? Hit me with your best shot. I, I knew it was Pat Benatar. I was either that or uh, you better run, but uh, I knew it was Pat. Oh, ben that was you better run. You you are correct. And that was MTV talking to, you know, the music industry. Like, yeah. Hey, we're here to, we're here to take over. Yep. All right. Worst tag team in 1981. Jeff, did you have a, a tag team that you liked the least? Now, I'm going to say that it's not that these guys were did a bad job or that I thought they were horrible in the ring or anything like that, because quite frankly, I didn't know enough. All I know is that in 1981 in Florida, I remember they were really pushing heavily the team of Bobby Jaggers and uh, R.T. Tyler. And all I kept thinking was, these guys are not up to the standards of the Briscoes and the Funks and the Kern and, and Graham and, and the kind of teams that we're used to seeing in Florida. I loved Bobby Jaggers in Florida in 1980. And then when he, they teamed him up with RT Tyler, it was like it, it took something out of him. Like the Bobby Jaggers of Southwest Championship Wrestling or, you know, uh, the NWA in 1986 was not the Bobby Jaggers of Florida in 1980. I've said this on the show before. I thought we had a, a real star on our hands and he just seemed to get really cold really fast. Yeah. 
just, uh, I don't know. I, I, he was presented as sort of like, uh, low rent dusty roads when dusty first started out. And I don't think, uh, he could ever have been that. Probably not. Dusty is a once in a once in a lifetime guy. I mean, God yeah. bless him. My worst tag team, as you've all probably guessed, was the Moondogs. I mean, you know, just a a channel changer. Uh, I mean, it was silly for the WWF, and I was kind of surprised in '82 when Georgia brought them in, albeit a a tamed down, pardon the pun, version of the Moondogs. Now, I will say that although I know it's not the same guys. I really like the Moon Dogs that were in Memphis in like the early part of the nineties. Oh, that was, was crazy stuff. Yeah. Oh man, with with Lawler and Jarrett and uh uh I don't know if it was anybody else, but yeah, that stuff was just like, man, those guys were beating the hell out of one another. And the the squash matches that the Moon Dogs would have with the jobbers in Memphis was like scary how bad they would beat those guys up. It is true. And it was funny. It just shows you like, you know, there really is a totem pole in wrestling. I mean the Moondogs would viciously beat up the jobbers and then Lawler would viciously beat up the Moondogs with all those stiff shots and chair shots and everything, everything else. Yeah, it was, uh, it was almost like frightening the way that the Moondogs would uh, handle the jobbers. And I sure, I say, I sure hope, but I think we know the answer to this. You'd like to think that maybe the jobbers got a little bit extra money from Jerry Jarrett. But then as I said that, I was like, (laughs) really? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the 90s, the early 90s were like a weird period because you had guys abusing the jobbers like the Moondogs in Memphis, like Vader and the Steiners uh, in World Championship Wrestling. And it's like, you know, who wants to get paid $25 and show up Monday with your arm in a sling for work? Yeah, no thanks. Uh, I never got it. But anyway... Most Outstanding Wrestler, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, gave it to the Magnificent Morocco. Uh, Jeff, who did you think was Most Outstanding in 1981? Uh, I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, Morocco was really, uh, he was just, the only other guy I could probably compare as far as just being a guy that really kind of glued me to the set when he was on was, you know, we mentioned Patera. So Morocco or Patera, I think, would be uh, easy, a good choice. I, you know, I, I just don't think Flair had really done enough uh, on a national basis. You know, we hadn't really seen that much of Flair in Florida, you know. Uh, we saw, like, you know, DiBiase on uh, TBS. But like you said, he was a couple years removed from being a, a guy that wasn't pushed to the moon in the WWF. Uh, you know, it would have been interesting uh, to see as I mentioned, DiBiase as a, as a world title, uh, a guy in the NWA, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, Patera or Morocco would have, would have been a, uh, a, a good choice either way. Yeah. You see, this one surprised me because to me, you know, when we're talking about most outstanding wrestler, I was a huge fan of Morocco in 1981, but he would not have been in my top 10. I mean, and probably even if you didn't include Japanese guys like Tatsumi Fujinami, Genichiro Tenru, et cetera, I mean, Flair's my number one, but I would have put Bob Orton, Adrian Adonis, Ricky Steamboat. I mean, just to name a couple ahead of Morocco as as in-ring performers. Well, first of all, Tenru was not, he was still a guy that was working mid-Atlantic, I think. Uh, uh, or like, uh, he, he was not established in, in Japan the way that Saruta would have been. Fujinami you could go with, uh, but... Tender was not a big deal at all. Uh, Saruta was the guy in Japan the, for all. Saruta was the guy I meant. I, okay. I apologize. Thank you for clearing so, uh, that up. Mm, 
Adrian Adonis would have been an interesting choice because Adrian Adonis was a really amazing, amazing wrestler before he put on his weight. He was. I mean, he was. You could argue that in 81, 82, he was better than Ric Flair. I mean, that's how good Adrian Adonis was. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did a, a match as late as 1984. We did a match with Adonis uh, and Murdoch against the Briscoes. That was, quite frankly, a match that when I watched it, I said should have been on my top 100 of the 80s because it was that good and might have been uh, one of the uh, last great. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to say that because it'll, somebody will, freaking get their B in a bonnet there or bonnet in a B or whatever the, the euphemism is. But let me just say the Briscoes versus Murdoch. I'm just really fucking up here. Uh, Briscoes versus Murdoch and Adonis in 84, like December of 84. You ever seen that match? Yeah, it was on TV. Tag, yeah, incredible tag match. Yeah, I mean, Adonis, you know, it was too bad what happened to him. He was making a comeback. He was losing weight. Crockett was going to bring him in as, you know, leather jacket Adrian Adonis and not adorable. And the accident happened. It's not good. But anyway, let's finally do it. 1981 Wrestler of the Year. Jeff, the Observer and Pro Wrestling Illustrated gave it to Ric Flair. Who did you think was 1981 Wrestler of the Year? Uh, well, let me think. You know, after after saying that I really hadn't seen Ric Flair, I, I really probably couldn't vote for Ric Flair. Maybe Adonis. You know, because he he had impressed me that much. And, you know, he was just a guy that was uh, you, you watch him with the benefit of hindsight and you say uh, this guy. It doesn't surprise me. Let's put it this way, that they put the uh, this the Southwest, quote unquote, world title on him. You know, at the time I was like, really, Adrian Adonis, he's like a tag team wrestler. Isn't it? And that was the mark in me saying that. But you watch him and you're like, OK, I understand why they did. He was fantastic. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. I mean, they're trying to put him up there with Flair, Backlund, and Bockwinkle, and to me, it just didn't work. Adrian did not have that that star power. My 1981 Wrestler of the Year was Ric Flair, and to me, you know, he won the NWA title, and he's one of, he's one of, if not the best in ring performer in the world. He's arguably the best interview out there, and he had just won the NWA title. I mean, it was all coming together for Ric Flair in 1981. So let me ask you a question as we close out our, uh, our little segment here. And I, I'm not trying to be morbid when I say this. We look back, we discussed David Von Erich earlier, okay? We look back, we discussed Gino Hernandez, guys that we lost too early, whose legacy remains intact because we lost them and we never had the chance to watch them grow old. Ric Flair, we've watched grow old. We've watched Ric Flair do things, quite frankly, that were embarrassing. We've heard stories about Ric Flair that are, as you look back on them, you know, with uh, the benefit of 2021 as we're recording this, and you can say, oh my, that would never fly today. That's embarrassing. Uh, that has caused Ric Flair in some instances to be, uh, uh, by some segment of the population to be canceled, if you will, to use their term. Do you think Ric Flair hanging on, uh, I, I hate to even put it that way, still being alive is a better way of putting it, has in some way damaged his legacy? What do you think? I think it has. And I think we're, I mean, I don't know if Rick needs money. He says he does not. He says he's financially set for life. 
that being the case, if that is the case, you know, Rick just needs to get away from the camera. He needs to, you know, have more have more of a private life because not every ex-wrestler is out there, you know, embarrassing themselves, quite frankly, the way Ric Flair is. And I, I just, you know, wish someone or Rick would figure it out himself that, okay, it's it's time to stay home. It's time to get off social media, et cetera, because he's he's just not good at it. Well, you know, I can remember over 30 years ago having a conversation with some friends of mine, and uh, they were talking uh, about uh, an interview that Ivan Koloff did, where Ivan Koloff was on TBS one day, and this is when he was, uh, you know, going out with uh, with nephew Nakita, and he made a comment to the effect of, you know, I know you look at Uncle Ivan and you think, oh, I'm just silly old man. But let me tell you, and my friend told me that is the worst thing the guy could do because now he's caused people to look at him and go, well, you know, he, he kind of is an old man. He's, he's getting older. You don't say that. Yep. Yeah. And so then as Nick Bockwinkle, who was still tremendous in the ring past 50 years old, but at some point Nick Bockwinkle began to look older and you sit there and you think to yourself, is this really what you, you know, as we discussed Vern, you know, giving himself the title when he was like 54 years old or whatever, do you really want that to be what you're presenting to the public as your, you know, your world champion when the, you know, public is looking at guys like Hulk Hogan and seeing them? And then I remember when, uh, you know, like you would see Flair and I, I said, you know, I, I think Flair was turning like maybe like 40 or something. And this would have been maybe around 1990 is when he turned 40 or, you know, within a year or two, either way. And I started talking about, uh, and one of the things I did in Bowdrin the Booker was, I said, you know, I said, in my mind, they need to start moving past Ric Flair and come up with a next generation world champion that they want to push as their world champion. And I remember having a discussion with our friend Dave Flaherty, and I said, you know, one day we're going to wake up and Ric Flair is going to turn into Fred Blassie. He's going to be the the guy that stayed too long and is now sort of embarrassing himself. And, you know, if you look at the matches that Rick had, it's like his retirement match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. It was a great match. But, you know, you see Rick, he's kind of starting to lose the hair. The face is sagging. The body is definitely sagging, you know. And you're like, at, at what point do you want to just say, Rick, just go home. Go home and don't taint your legacy this way. And I think in the ring, even though he could still bring it and still do it, he stayed too long in the ring. And now with the stuff he's doing, uh, you know, on social media, you know, on his different platforms, the, the, the dark side episode and, you know, what he uh, was alleged to have done, whether he did or not, he was alleged to. And it was a very bad and embarrassing look for him. I, I agree. I wonder if his legacy hasn't been tainted. It, it has been, and, and Rick is my my favorite wrestler of all time, and I think he's always going to be. But yeah, Rick's, Rick's had some moments lately, and it, it's kind of sad. But not to end this show on a sad note, Jeff, you have a podcast on the Arcadian Vod Vanguard Podcast Network. Tell the us Arcadian about it. Vaudeville Network. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I don't know if they've heard about it. I do have a show. I, I do with this guy named Barry Rose. Uh, who apparently comes on your show as a guest, doesn't bother to mention it to me. So guess what? John, Barry doesn't know that I'm doing this appearance. He's going to find out when your show drops. So boom goes the dynamite. 
There you go, Barry Rose. It is called Breaking Gay Fable, Bowdrin and Barry. Unlike John, we do not just stick to wrestling. We uh, talk about a little bit of everything. We talk about, uh, oh, sports, movies, television, wrestling, pop culture. We talk about life. And we also have a fine Patreon channel that is available. We come out twice a month. We have the initial episode. Then we have the supplemental episode with additional content. Merely five bucks a month. John, I know you're a subscriber to that, right? Uh, three times. Okay. I have three accounts. And you've enjoyed it every time. Which ones did you listen to? The one that I was on. Oh, so you didn't like listen to our interviews with Greg Gagne or Bob Roof or people like that. No, no, it's just I want to pay to listen to myself. Okay, I think we got you, McAdam. Over and over again, I listened to that episode. It was so wonderful. I, re- <laughs> I recommend everyone buy this just to hear me because it's so hard to hear me on a podcast. I hardly ever do it. Okay, so since we don't stick to wrestling only, uh, at least when I'm on, we'll leave the folks with this. John, you are a, a documented fan of the Tennessee Vols. Your team is an SEC Southeastern Conference team. So I want to ask you, John McAdam, what do you think about Brian Kelly going to LSU? Boom! As a Notre Dame fan, I'm curious, John. Well, I, I think I share this with you. Um, Personally, but not on the air. Okay, well, I will tell everyone on Stick to Wrestling what I think. I think Brian Kelly did a tremendous job at Notre Dame. I mean, I'm looking back. He's won at least 10 games over the last four years. That said, I think Brian Kelly is going to blow it. He's going to bomb at LSU. I think, you know, they just gave him a paycheck and he there were enough zeros where he just took it. And I think that's going to be his retirement job. I think Notre Dame actually traded up with the younger, more enthusiastic Marcus Freeman. So uh, just to clarify something you said, actually, uh, Brian Kelly had five years. The last five years, I believe the team was okay. like 53 and eight or 53 and nine, something like that, but very successful. There's no question about it, but I will tell you this. And uh, for those of you who care, Brian Kelly, uh, it has uh, been widely spoken of since his departure, had been looking for an exit uh, door for the last couple of years. He was one of these guys who would uh, go into the uh, the athletic director pretty much on a yearly basis. Uh, what about a pay bump? What about a pay bump? Uh, you know, and uh, after, by the way, signing a contract, of course, there is that. There are reports that uh, if he had been offered it before Lincoln Riley, he would have taken the USC job. Which, boy, you want to talk about a, a you want to talk about a fan base being pissed off? I uh, it, go from Notre Dame and take the USC job. Yeah. So what did you think about Brian's uh, situation? Just happy to be here, me and my family. We're happy to be here in uh, Baton Rouge, the Irish Catholic kid from Boston. <laughs> He's actually from Everett, but close enough. I mean, yeah, you, you know, obviously you got to be yourself. I mean, I, I know what that's like, you know, moving from New York to New England and having a New York accent when people, you know, but I, I didn't, you know, come up here and start saying, hey, park the car in Harvard Yard, you know, I can't do it. <laughs> You're not one of the Kennedys, apparently, huh? <laughs> people up here, you watch Family Guy. People up here really talk like that. It's scary. <laughs> All right. Jeff, thank you for the last two weeks for being the guest on Stick to Wrestling. Thank you so much. I will uh, look forward to the uh, the check coming in my PayPal account. You'll be looking forward to that for quite some time. <laughs> I just bet. All right. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, This comes out December 31st, last day of 2021. I want to wish everyone a very happy 2022. 
I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.